All right, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, a great verse. Uh, we've been working our way through 1 Timothy, and we will look at it, and we looked at the first part of this verse, you know, the last time we were together, and I want to look at the second part, and in 1 Timothy 2.8, we read, Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, it's an interesting verse, and some might think, it, you know, why is this just show up right there in 1 Timothy 2.8? Well, if you follow the context, it's pretty clear, right? Because as we're working our way through 1 Timothy, Paul went into this whole thing where, uh, you know, we're not saved by the law, and that those who are teaching that you have to keep the law of Moses, uh, they're missing the boat, and uh, that the law was given for, the, we're talking about the law of Moses, not the law of Christ, but the law of Moses was given uh, for, to sinners, right, to show them their sin, and then he points out that we're saved by God's grace, and he emphasizes that God saved him, the chief of all sinners, right, to show others that they too could be saved by his grace, amen, and he goes into this whole thing about praying for everybody. Right after that, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, praying for everybody. And he wants to make sure that we don't miss people in our prayers that we may neglect praying for. That's why in verse 2 of chapter 2, he goes on to say to pray for who? The leaders, right? Kings, those who are in authority. Because those were the people in the first century, often like when Paul's writing this letter, you have Nero, Caesar Nero, who's reigning, who is going to be killing a lot of Christians, right? You say, well, it's hard to pray for those folks. Well, those folks need prayer the most, amen? Because he says to pray for them, not only because God wills that all would be saved, verse 4, and Christ gave himself a ransom for all, verse 6, right? And because there's a mediator between men and God, Christ Jesus, verse 5, all those reasons are important because God wants to save even wicked kings, as we've seen, and those who are in authority, but he also wants us to live peaceable lives. Amen? So he says that as well. So we could live. So, you know, he wants us to be able to share the gospel in peace. And that's important to keep in mind. So we talked about that. And we got into all of that. And we talked about applying that to our prayer lives. And have you asked yourself, hey, when's the last time I prayed for my leaders? You know, the leaders of the country? I have to admit, with some presidents, it's like I almost feel like I've got to close my, you know, grab my nose to pray for them, you know? Because they're just in such rebellions. Politicians in general often are liars, you know, and they're phonies. So it's really hard to pray for them. But those folks need prayer. Amen? They need to be, you know, God wants to save everybody. And we looked at scriptures along those lines. In fact, verse 4, God wills that all would be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. So the issue has been prayer. And then he gives these, these reasons and, and things we should, ought to do to make sure we are praying for everybody. So I want to encourage you to make sure you're praying, man, and make sure you're praying for the lost. And that's key. But now he returns to prayer in verse 8, and he says, Therefore I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Meaning there's a way we, are, we ought to pray. Good to see you, Brother Kenny, all, all the way from Idaho. Man, it seems like every week we have people from Idaho. It's just great, man, constant, you know. I told Joe Pirro, I spent some time with him. We got together. He is a big Eagles fan. He invited himself over to my house for Monday Night Football because the Eagles were playing. And I, I was great, but uh, <laughs> we had a great time. One of my best friends, and I was like, man, Joe, I see you more now that you moved than I saw you before, you know. <laughs> it's kind of funny how that works. But great to see you, Kenny. 
Uh, so it's important, you guys, that we recognize the context here because he's emphasizing lifting our hands in prayer, right? Important. But he's also emphasizing that these are holy hands that we lift without wrath and dissension. You can lift your hands all you want in prayer in obedience to God, but have a heart that is unholy, impure, uh, full of rebellion against God, and just go through the motions and be full of wrath and dissension, and your prayers won't be answered. And a lot of people are living a life of just, you know, rampant sin, and they're wondering, wondering why God's not answering their prayers, you know? You know, there's people that are in full-blown rebellion. They're getting drunk, and they're, they're doing drugs, and they're chasing women, and, and, or guys, depending, you know, and they're claiming to be Christians, and then something goes wrong. They're like, God, how come you're not answering my prayers? It's like, wait a minute. We need to look at that. And we need to examine our own hearts. And I just really, my prayer for us this evening has been, uh, as I've worked on this and contemplated, is just that our prayer lives would be enhanced and that we become stronger in our prayers. Uh, and, and a lot of people want, you know, and praise God, a lot of people aspire to have, you know, more effective prayer lives. Millions and millions and millions of Christians pray for more effective prayer lives. I was just reading a story today of a prayer conference that's beginning on October, uh, the 6th of October, uh, not sure if you want to try to make it or not, uh, I wouldn't advise it. Uh, it's by an evangelist, popular evangelist named uh, Juanita Bynum. And she rose to relative fame within the church uh, after she did a conference with T.D. Jakes called Women. She preached there, Women, that Woman, Thou Art Loosed conference it was called. And she preached there. And now, on, if you go to her conference on October 6th, she wants to teach you how to have your prayers answered and have a more effective uh, prayer, you know, time. And she's even going to give you, you know, a, a little bottle of anointing oil and, and a prayer shawl, you know, so your prayers will be more effective, allegedly. And you just have to give her 1500 bucks to pay to pray, you know. So now we're charging much less tonight, okay. It's, it's free, okay. The good news is that Jesus doesn't charge us to learn how to pray, amen. And that God's word, you just open it, you know. And, and by the way, that gal, after that conference and everything, and she was all over the map, you know, and, you know, uh, you know she f divorced, her and her husband got divorced, and she admitted that she was involved in illicit drugs and having sex relationships with different men and different women, all kinds of things. And the Bible warns us that wolves will enter into the church in sheep's clothing, and they'll make merchandise of... The flock, it says in 2 Peter chapter 2. The Bible warns us about that. So you have to test everything and hold fast to that which is good. So the good news is that we don't have to pay all that money. Amen. And God wants us, we're his children. He wants us to just talk to him. Amen. But he wants us to come to him and, and, uh, and talk to him with hearts that are full of uh, appreciation for who he is and what he's done for us and everything else. So... Uh, are you, you know, have, 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 do you want your prayer life to grow? Do you want your prayers to be more effective? Well, let's pay attention to the scriptures. That's all he asks us to do is search the scriptures and, and, and apply them to our lives, amen, and seek to grow in our prayer lives. So in 1 Timothy 2.8, Therefore I want men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands. He wants us to lift up holy hands. That's hands that are, what does it mean to be holy, first of all? Because we want to do this right. 
Holy means to be separate from that which is evil and consecrated unto God. He wants our hands to be instruments of righteousness, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 6. Our hands ought not be instruments of evil, but instruments of righteousness. And we talked last Sunday about being servants, amen? And the foundation of godly ministry is a righteous character before God. And the, and, and the calling of ministry is that we're all called to be servants, amen? And the motivation of our ministry is love for a God who loved us first, amen? amen. And, uh, and seeking to, you know, encourage others to grow in Christ and, and to, to know Jesus. But it's important that we understand that he wants us to lift holy hands, you know? And we talked about lifting hands a bit. I spent a lot of time on it. You know why? More commentaries. I can't tell you how many commentaries I looked at that would always, almost every one of them said, I was like, what in the world? It's like these guys are all saying the same thing. Is really what not, is not emphasized. The emphasis here isn't lifting hands. It's, it's having a pure heart. And I do agree the emphasis is having a pure heart. Hence, part two of this message on verse eight. But why de-emphasize lifting up holy hands unless it's something that you just don't do? I'm like, look at these commentators. I'm like, why are you saying that? Why are you saying that this really isn't important? And that's hence the reason I spent so much time verse after verse after verse after verse after verse at almost infinitum, you know, uh, last uh, week uh, showing how many verses encourage us to lift holy hands. And I even quoted a Baptist scholar who said he began to lift his hands because he's a Hebrew scholar and he saw how many times it says to lift your hands over and over again where it's not even translated lift your hands. I went through a lot of those verses. It's all over the scripture. And you need to ask yourself, is there a reason I won't lift my hands before God? Now, if you don't have hands or you're paralyzed, which some people are, you know, or you don't, you know, you, you, but if you have hands, you're able to lift them. Why would you not lift your hands before the Lord? What's the answer? Lazy? Well, then don't be lazy. Lift your hands before the Lord, you know? There's people, you know, for self are just uh, constantly working out, lifting so much weight and, you know, and, and, and they just want to get stronger. And that's good because, you know, you want to be healthy and so forth. But how much weight do you have to lift to lift your hands? But I do get tired. Well, like working out. After a while, you won't get tired anymore. Not as tired. And if you get tired, you can put them down. But lift your hands to the Lord. I encourage you to do that. Is it pride? I mean, what would keep you from lifting your hands in prayer? Are you more concerned about what people think or obedience to God? Because he tells us. Now, do we always have to lift our hands before the Lord when we pray? Of course not. There's different postures of prayer. But since the Lord calls us to do this, Right? And, and men typically led in prayer. Like in the Jewish synagogue, the men would lead in prayer. And this is early in church history, and the men were still leading in prayer. Although I believe women can pray 100% as well in the church. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. So men and women ought to all be praying in church together. Amen? And we, it's important to lift our hands, you know? And again, I'm not saying all the time, but I'm saying, you know, just make, it, make that more normative and not the exception. When you're at home praying, man, when you wake up in the morning, you're praying, you know, lift up your hands to the Lord, you know, and I know me personally, it's like sometimes I'm sleeping on my side, you know, on my belly, my shoulders jacked up, so it's hard to sleep on my belly, and I definitely can't sleep my right side, which is the side I always sleep on, so I'm on my left side trying to get used to that, but I'm on my back more, so it's easier to just, shh. but there'll be times where it's like, okay, Lord, I'm praying, I'm seeking, I'm laying on my belly, 
you know, because I'm back. I'm just starting to get back in my belly a little bit, laying down. I'm like, I want to lift my hands to you, Lord, but man, I'm so comfortable. I'm trying to go back to sleep. It's like 4.30 in the morning. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go back to sleep or not. Then I just throw myself over eventually, just lift my hands in prayer. And I say, I want, to, I want to do that too. I don't have to do that. He's pleased that he wants us to pray without ceasing. Amen. So there's times where how can you pray without ceasing and lift your hands all the time? You can't. He doesn't expect you to lift your hands every moment. But he does call us as our Father to lift our hands to him. And again, I mentioned to you, I love it when my little ones, you know, uh, grandchildren come up to me and they lift their hands and they want to be held. It's just so precious. It's precious in God's eyes for you when you lift your hands to him and seek him in prayer. It, it, it's a blessing to his heart. But you can't just lift your hands and say, I'm lifting my hands, but be in rebellion to him. And also I mentioned spiritual warfare. Let me read Exodus 17:11 before we get into the holiness of the hands. Back to the posture. God commands Moses. So it came about when Moses held his, up his hand that Israel prevailed in war. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When he has his hand up, he's seeking the Lord, they had victory over the, the Amalekites. When his hand went down, the Amalekites had victory. We don't have time to get into it, but the Amalekites are a vivid picture of the flesh. And they're a vivid picture of the enemy. They picked off the Israelites as they're going in the, trying to go to the promised land. They picked off the stragglers that were behind. And they were very wicked. And it's when we lift up our hands, we're saying no to the enemy. We're saying no to the flesh. It helps us concentrate. Remember I mentioned, I notice when I'm praying and my hands are up, if I, my hands aren't up, sometimes I'll wander. And I'll go, oh, I gotta stay. What am I doing, man? Stay focused on prayer. But as soon as my mind starts to wander when I'm praying and my hands up, they start to go down. Like, then I know I'm wandering. Oh, pfft. you know, sometimes you can't wander in prayer when you're tired or whatever. Just it's, it's very, very important behavior. And I, I'm emphasizing all over again, even though I want to get into the other substance of the, the other aspect of the verse, because I don't want any of you to miss the privilege of lifting your hands before the Lord. It's such a privilege. And it's not just here with Moses. And it's not just seeing, you know, the Red Sea split when he lifted up the staff, right? But it's also Joshua when they're at war with Ai. And as long as his hands are up, they got victory over Ai. And what's interesting with regard to the Amalekites and Ai, God took the situation with regard uh, to uh, one of those situations, and it was the first thing God had them write down, the victory from the hands up. Oh, that's interesting. And then I read this here in 1 Timothy 2.8, and he says, and it's important enough for the Holy Spirit to encourage us to do that. So when I know a lot of churches don't do it, but we don't conform to what other churches do. We conform to what Scripture does. We want to be a New Testament church. New Testament churches raise their hands. And how we know that, not only because the Scriptures say that, but we know from the writings of the early church fathers. We also know from the catacombs. Catacombs are the burial places I mentioned in the 2nd and 3rd century where the Christians buried their dead. And there's, there's catacombs where it just shows Christians with, in worship with their hands up. So I want to encourage you to do that. But... Like I said, you can have your hands up all day long. But if your heart's in rebellion to God, it doesn't matter. You want to make sure your heart is right with God. And the last thing I'll say about lifting up your hand is, and why they need to be right with God. Now, I'll mention it again, but as far as the importance of lifting hands, because now I'm going to get into the, into the encouragement of the posture of the heart. Last week, we talked about the posture of the body. Raising your hands is important. This week, we want to talk about the posture of your heart. However, 
Lifting your hands is an expression often of the posture of the heart. Uh, it's, a, it's a matter of obedience. If you, if you love me, obey my commandments. And this is part of the law of Christ. But it's interesting, the Greek word translated worship uh, in the Septuagint often for worship and used in the New Testament as well is proskuneo. Proskuneo, and it's the, you know, the uh, pros, you know, dealing with, you know, position, you know, is to kneel. Proskuneo means to bow and kiss. I think that is so interesting. The word for worship means to bow down and to kiss. So when we worship God, in a sense, we're bowing hearts before him, right? And we're, and we're kissing him in worship. We're saying, I love you, Father. I love you. So raising our hands is a way to express love. It's an expression of love and obedience. But he says in verse 8, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. I want to take all, part, all three of those parts. First, holy hands. Our hands need to be holy. They need to be, uh, it's hard to know, you know. The commentators speculate, but we can't be sure. They'll say things like, ah, evidently there was dissension in the church because of the Judaizers or the false teachers in chapter one who were trying to teach the law, and therefore there was infighting in the church. And, and while they were uh, fighting with each other, they'd also pray you know, and, but they're fighting and praying at the same time and they ought not have been doing, doing that. Others will say, well, it's because of the, the women teachers who had infiltrated the church when the verses that follow, which forbids women pastors, but not women teaching. Some forbid women teaching. But that's not what the Bible doesn't forbid that women can't ever teach. Uh, but we'll get into that. That's coming up. Pretty interesting studies we'll get into. But some say, and so there's fighting over that issue and you're fighting with the women. And I'm like, but they have no evidence of what specifically Paul is talking about. So what they're doing is they're trying to picture what was happening at the church at Ephesus or perhaps the multiple churches, house churches that made up the church at Ephesus praying in every place. And that since there's, these are issues of false doctrine that have come in, you know, then therefore you have issues of fighting over those things. And, but they're speculating. We don't know for sure. And we don't need to know for sure because it still applies to all of us. Amen? Amen. We need to make sure we lift up holy hands to the Lord. Now I want you to go to Psalm chapter 24. Go to Psalm chapter 24 and look at verses 3 through 5. Psalm chapter 24 verses 3 through 5. The psalmist asks the important question. When you get there you'll see in verse 3, who may ascend or go up into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? It's a, it's a good question. You know, uh, Jerusalem was on Mount Moriah, in Mount Moriah. It's where Christ would be crucified. That's where Abraham was called to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, a picture of Christ, because Isaac was his only son, by way of promise, that is. Uh, and the holy hill was where the sacrifices were done and where the holy of holies would be. And the... the holy place in the outer part of the temple and who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place look at verse 4 it answers the question he who has what clean. he who has clean hands and a what pure heart clean hands I want you to note this clean hands and a pure heart go together amen he who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood 
and has not sworn deceitfully. Verse 5, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So we want to make sure when we go into God's presence, now, now where's the temple at, guys? Right here. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we individually are also the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And he lives in us. And we ought to, when we worship him, to have hearts that are pure and hands that are holy. In fact, what did Paul say in the first chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5? That the goal of our instruction is what? Love from a pure heart, amen? A sincere faith, amen? And a good conscience. So Paul already called for your pure heart. So the pure heart's already there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Now he wants holy hands to be lifted up. It's kind of interesting. You have both those concepts when you put those two chapters together. He wants us to lift up holy hands to the Lord. A sinful, unrepentant heart that clutches onto sin will hinder us from having our prayers answered. You don't need to pay $1,500 to find out how to more effective prayer life. Let's just, we're going to search the scriptures and see how effective our prayer life could be by simply going to the scriptures. We must have clean hands and pure hearts. Go to James chapter 4 now in the New Testament, verse 6. James 4, verse 6. Now James is dealing with people that are going through all sorts of trials. That's how he begins his epistle. He talks to those who are scattered abroad throughout the land and the 12 tribes of Israel that are scattered. Uh, we're actually going to be going through James, as I've mentioned to you, after we finish Revelation. And we're actually huh, going through it. We're getting through Revelation 22. It's the last chapter. But it's interesting because James is uh, talking to people who are going through various trials. And he's telling them that they are strengthened in their trials and the Lord's with them. And the Lord will give them wisdom. And he tells them when they're in the midst of their trials in chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, because guess what? When you're in a trial and you're going through some heavy stuff, you need to pray, amen? So if you lack wisdom, ask of God. But he says to them not to be double-minded. Because if you're double-minded, you'll be like the surf of the sea, like the waves just crashing, right? You can't be focused on the world and love the world and then say, oh, I love you, the Lord, and go back and forth between loving the world and doing the world's thing and then trying to do the Lord's thing. Because he said the double-minded man will receive nothing from the Lord. Well, he picks, back up, he picks that theme back up in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, but he gives greater grace. God gives great grace, guys. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if we're proud and we're full of wrath and dissension, we're, we're not going to receive his grace. Verse 7, he says, submit, therefore. That's a military term, by the way. It means to do an about face, a 180, and submit to your commanding general. Because he's talking about resisting the devil and he'll flee from you in this context. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. So when you're turning to God, you're turning away from the devil. If you're not turning to God, you're facing the devil. You're either facing God and doing his will or you're doing the devil's will. Submit, therefore, to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Then what's the next words? Cleanse what? Cleanse your hands. You sinners. And then what? Purify your hearts. You double-minded. So we must make sure that our hearts are pure before God. And we must make sure our hands are clean before him. That means there's no stain of sin that's unrepentant. There's no ongoing wickedness in our lives that we're continuing to pursue. And can you say in your life, you know, are you, can you say, yeah, there's nothing I'm 
I'm repent, I've repented of all intentional sin that I know of my life and I've let it go. And I'm, I'm, I've got clean hands for the Lord, a pure heart, and I'm not holding on to rebellion. Can you say that you've let go of unrepentant, intentional sin in your life? It's important that we're doing that, you know? Verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Wow, how important is that, you guys? That's critical. That's critical that we humble ourselves before him. Say, you're God, I'm not. You're Lord, I'm your servant. I'm gonna do your will. And let your laughter be turned into mourning. When's the last time you hurt over your sin? When's the last time you said, man, I really hurt your heart, God. I can't believe I did this. You made me. You loved me. You gave yourself for me. You, Jesus, you shed your blood on the cross for me. And I'm just acting like it's not a big deal. Please forgive me, you know. And we need to have hearts that are, are broken before him. Now, it doesn't mean you're constantly going around mourning and weeping because your laughter you know, it's to be turned to gloom when you repent. And the Bible says there's tears in the evening, but there's joy in the morning, amen? When you get right with the Lord, he picks you back up. <sighs> you know, you breathe nice. And I remember when I was a little kid, and I'd get in trouble a lot. My poor mom, surprised she's going to come. She's coming from Idaho too. She'll be here Friday and staying at our house. Lisa, I'm like, praise God she still loves me. I was such a bad little kid, you know? up until I turned 18, got right with Jesus. But before that, man, I was a hellraiser. And you know what? I remember getting in trouble and getting the switch. I deserved it a lot more than I got it. And I'd be like crying really hard and everything. I remember later, like an hour later or whatever, I'd be like, <sighs> and it felt so good. It's, if you ever, anybody's experienced that, maybe you weren't as bad as me, but I was just, <sighs> breathing felt so good. It was so weird. I was like, I was not a Christian. I was like, I was like, why does it feel so good to relieve? And it was, it, it, it was a cleansing process. I wasn't cleansed from my sins, but I got right for a little bit and realized I'd done wrong, and there was such a good feeling. But man, when you get right with God and you repent of sin and you're cleansed of sin, it's a deeper breath of, thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness, you know. And uh, so sin, that, if we have sin in our hearts, man, it cuts off our communication with God. It ruins your prayer life while you continue to hold on to sin and while you're carrying sin around. It defiles your conscience, you know. I, I mean, listen to Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. It's not short like you can't help. It says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins or your iniquities have separated you from your God. Did you catch that? But your sins or your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Unrepentant, unconfessed sins keep God from hearing us. Oh, he could hear us, but he doesn't listen to us if we're in rebellion to him. This is serious stuff, guys. No wonder millions of professing Christians aren't getting their prayers answered because so many people are just living for this world system. And when James talks about 
you know, resisting the devil, submitting to God, resisting the devil, and he'll flee from you, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you and cleanse your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, and all that. That's right after verse 4, where he says, you adulteresses. Woo, man. He's calling the church there adulteresses. Those who are in the rebellion he's talking about. Spiritual adultery there. He's talking about spiritual adultery, cheating on God. Because they're cheating with the world system, Satan's kingdom. He says, you adulteresses, know you not that French, James 4, 4, you adulteresses, know, not, you, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. So if I'm like living for the world and I'm loving the world more than I'm loving the word, amen, and I'm following the sinful ways of the world, I make myself an enemy of God. So why would God bless me when I'm in rebellion to him? No, he's going to spank me right? To get my attention and draw me back to himself. And I'm either going to respond and repent of my sin and come back, or I'm going to harden my heart and say, no, I don't want to give this up. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be. Listen to Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. It says this, he who conceals his transgressions. What does it mean to conceal? It means to hide. He who conceals or hides his transgressions will not prosper. So if you're thinking, man, I'm getting away with sin, man. No, you're not. You're not prospering the Lord. That's real prosperity, amen? He who conceals or hides his sins will not prosper. Listen to this. Verse 13 goes on to say, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. He who confesses them and say, Lord, I blew it. I'm so sorry will find compassion. Now, if you've turned from your sin and you're sorry for it, you say, Lord, have mercy on me. He's a good God, amen. He promises to forgive you, amen. His mercies are new every morning. He's good. He's longing for you to turn. It says, you know, he longs to show mercy, it says in the scripture. That's the heart of God. That's such a wonderful heart that he just wants to, all that we put him through and all the way we break his hearts, you know, he still longs to show us mercy. Because he wants an intimate relationship with him. Yes, amen. That's a, that's a wonderful God. Listen to Psalm 66, 18. But if I'm like, you know what? No, you know what? You know, I just want to go, man, and, 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 and do some meth and, or snort some coke or, you know, get drunk and, you know, you know party. Or I just want to, you know, go do whatever evil thing. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, if I regard iniquity in my heart, like I want, I want to live for sin, the Lord will not hear. The Lord will not hear. This is serious stuff. Sometimes it can be as subtle as just, you know, well, everybody's selfish. I mean, we're just selfish people. And selfishness will keep your prayers from being answered. James 4.3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So if your prayer is all about you being prosperous and so forth, which is a lot like the prosperity gospel, you know, the popular false gospel in television, you know, where it's constantly name it, claim it, and, you know, God wants you, everybody to be rich and healthy and wealthy and, and, and just, you know, and there's an emphasis on how much you can get. And there's a lot of selfish motives there in that kind of, with that gospel. And uh, it's, it's too bad because James says you ask with wrong motives. Sometimes it's pride just pride, being self-focused and, 
and thinking you're better than somebody or everybody else and thinking I'm, I'm special, you know, or whatever. Not that you're doing that, but we got to watch out for the pride tendency because that keeps our prayers from being answered. Uh, remember Luke chapter 8, ver- 18, verse 14, with the tax gatherer, right, and the publican, the Pharisee? In 18, 14, we read the tax collector says, uh, uh, we, you know, that, that's, I won't go into the whole thing there, but remember, that's, I mentioned this recently, so I'm just going to say it really briefly. The, 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 the Pharisee was like, you know, I, I fast twice a week. I give to the poor. I'm not like that sinner over there pointing at the tax gatherer. And the tax gatherer couldn't even lift up his eyes, you know. He beat his chest and said, have mercy on me. God, I'm a sinner, you know. And they were despised, the tax gatherers, and they were sinners often. I mean... What is Biden encouraging or growing the IRS to? It's like some godless number of like 80,000 or something. I don't know what it is. It's huge. Probably to go after Christians, you know. And that's what they did under Obama. They went after evangelicals and conservatives. And uh, still pray for Biden, though. Oh, I was just going to pray for him. No, I'm not going to. No, I'll still pray for him, you know. We need more prayer now, amen? So, but it's interesting because the... The guy, he beat his chest, he wouldn't even look up. And then Jesus said to you, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax gatherer, went down to his house justified or right with God rather than the other. Why? Because we've already read God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? Grace Grace to the humble. This guy humbled himself, said, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm not worthy. So when we go into God's presence, we need to go in there to his presence with what? Clean hands right? Holy hands, pure heart, right? And with a humble heart, amen? You're God. I don't deserve anything. Everything is a gift from you. As I always say, the only thing I could take credit for, that is Joe Schimmel, is my mess-ups, my sin and my past. God gives all the glory. Anything good in my life, that's come from him. Amen? amen? Same with you. All, God deserves all the glory. Now, uh, Listen to Isaiah 1. Actually, go to Isaiah 1.15 because it's really something you should look at as well, perhaps. I love this, especially in light of our... Uh, Isaiah 1 is like just uh, several verses dealing with the sin of Israel in rebellion to God. And the prophet Isaiah is prophesying, calling them to repentance, but also letting them know why they're in dire straits and why God's disciplining them. And when you go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15... Listen to what it says here, or read it with me if you can. If you don't have your Bible open or you haven't gotten there, just you can go and listen. Isaiah 115 says, So when you spread out your hands, that was a normal way to pray, right? According to the New Testament, it should still be a normal way to pray. When you spread out your hands, now remember Paul said to lift holy hands in prayer, but do it how? Right? Without wrath and dissension, right? Lift holy hands to the Lord. Here he says, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. What? Why? Yes, even though you multiply prayers, even though you pray with a bunch of prayers with your hands lifted, I will not listen. Your hands are what? Cover the blood. So Israel, you can go to some states in the United States and they're known as being part of the Bible Belt, but Christianity has become much a culture there rather than a living faith for many people. And, you know, Steve used to, live in Texas and you're shaking your head. I think you're, is that what you're thinking? You're thinking that. He's like, yeah. Oh, we love our Texas home groups, you know, live stream groups. Praise God for you guys. You know, you guys are for real though. You know, you guys love the Lord, but there's, and there's not cultural Christianity in our, 
our live stream groups, oh, there may be some there. Make sure you're serious about Jesus. You all know Jesus and you're born again. Same with us, amen? It's people here, obviously, in California. Yeah, but you guys land the fruits and nuts. You know, well, that's, I'm not slinging mud here, guys. I'm just saying there's problems that go on in every culture. But in the Bible Belt in certain areas, everybody claims to be a Christian. It's hard to even witness to a lot of people because, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. They even go to church. But they're like not about Jesus, a lot of them. They're about, again, getting drunk and chasing women and doing all that stuff. And that's a cultural Christianity. And what happened in Israel at this time was it became cultural Judaism, you know. A lot of the Jews were just going through the motions and they were lifting their hands because it was customary to lift their hands in prayer. Uh, but and they were multiplying their prayers, but he said, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. They were taking advantage of poor people. There was no justice there in a lot of uh, Israel and Judah. And there was uh, a lot of sin. And he goes, through, he goes through a litany of their various sins in chapter one and elsewhere. But when you get to Isaiah chapter six, in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah pronounces woe after woe after woe upon the land of Israel. Woe to those who steal other people's land, he says, you know. Woe to those who rise up in the morning and get drunk and, and they have all kinds of music and banquets, but they don't mention me in their music, you know. It's just secular, you know. It's all secular music and they're forgetting about the Lord. Oh, but I'm a follower of the Lord, but they don't, they're not concerned about really the Lord at all. And then he's woeing these people and he's woeing those people, Isaiah is. He's God's prophet. Yet we get to chapter 6. He goes into the presence of the Lord. Do you remember that? And he sees the Lord high and lifted up and the, the, the trainer's robe filling the, the, the temple, right? And the threshold of the temple shaking. And, he's, and he sees the cherubim, you know, uh, the seraphim worshiping the Lord, the fiery ones. And they're fiery, I told you, because God is a consuming fire and they're in his presence. And they look like they're just on fire practically. These are the, the burning ones, they're called, literally in the Hebrew. The burning ones. And they're called cherubim, I believe, in Revelation chapter 4. Okay, we're talking about the, the cherubim in chapter 4, 5 there. And, uh, or I should say the living creatures, but they're called cherubim elsewhere. Seraphim and cherubim, I believe, describe actually the same angels. And as they lift their, and as they're worshiping God, right, with two wings they fly and two wings they cover their face and two wings they cover their feet. And they're saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen. And what does Isaiah say? Do you remember what he says? As he looks up and he's just beholding this wonder as God gives him a picture of what's going on in the heavenlies. What does Isaiah say? He pronounces another woe. What is that, Jimmy? Woe is me. Woe is me. I am undone, or I am falling apart, or I am coming apart at the seams. Why? Because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell with a people of unclean lips. All of a sudden, he recognizes whatever sin he may not have saw in his own life. He's like, oh, no. They're, he sees them. It just occurred to me as I'm sharing right this very second. He sees their wings over their mouths, right? And maybe that reminds him like, what about my mouth? My people's mouths. I'm not sure exactly what jarred that in his, but I'm a man of unclean lips. And I told the people of unclean lips, right? And what happened? The Lord said, that's right, Isaiah. You're going to hell. No. He had an angel take a tongue and take a coal from the temple and burn it on his lips. A symbol of being purified. Well, we don't need a coal from the temple. That coal from the heavenly altar, I should say, because Jesus is the blood that was offered to God. Amen? On the ultimate altar of God for our sins. We need to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. But we are coming into the presence when we pray of the thrice holy God. Amen? We need to take that seriously. Therefore, when we lift up our hands, we need to say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. 
Amen? When Jesus taught us to pray, and he didn't charge 1500 bucks like Juanita Bynum, who we talked about in the beginning, just gave freely, here's how you pray. One of the things he said to pray is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Amen? Because he wants us to have holy hands. He wants us to have what? Purified hearts. Amen? So that's part of the Lord's prayer. The prayer that he gave his disciples is to pray for forgiveness. So you go into God's presence, recognize that he's thrice holy and that you want to make sure you're right with God. And then guess what? You know what? And I love this about the Lord's Prayer. The first words, our Father who art in heaven, come Father, we're born again to a living hope. As many as received him, he gave the right to become the what? Children of God. Amen. He's your Father. Our Father who art in heaven, what's the very first thing you request? Hallowed be thy name. Father, may I show the world, and may I recognize, may I show others that you are holy. Hallowed means to show forth as holy. So what are you doing when you first start praying? First thing you're saying is, Lord, help me recognize your holiness. Help me promote your holiness. As soon as you do that, you recognize your unholiness, right? And you recognize your need. Oh no, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Have mercy on us. So you enter into his presence by confessing your sins and your need for forgiveness. Amen, are you with me? So that's how you go into his presence. And it's very, very important that we get this. And, and it's important too because God make, wants us to make, make sure we're repentant. In fact, in Acts 17.30, Paul says, God is now declaring to men uh, that all people everywhere, all people everywhere should repent, right? We need to be repentant. But we need to come to remember Proverbs 28.3, he that conceals or hides his sin will not prosper, right? But he that con uh, confesses and forsakes his sin will be shown compassion. Well, listen to what 1 John 1, 7 through 10 says. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, because he's holy and he's in the light, and we need to be purified, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if I'm like, man, you know what? I'm perfect. I, I can't think of any sins I've ever committed. You know, God, and you don't ask for forgiveness and so forth. Well, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, I love it. Listen to this. If we confess our sins, homo legeo, it's a great Greek word, confess. It's from the Greek word homo legeo. Homo means same like homosexual means same sex, right? The Greek word homo legeo. Legeo is from, you know, legeo is related to logos, which means the word, a message, uh, to speak. Legeo means to uh, confess. If we homo legeo, if we confess the same thing, if we say the same thing about our lives that God says is what it means. Homo legeo, H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-O, in the Greek, that's how you transliterate it to English, uh, the Greek word, homo legeo, that word literally means to say the same thing that God is saying about our sin, that we say the same thing he's saying. We're saying, yeah, okay, same-sex marriage is wrong. Yeah, getting drunk is wrong. Yeah, being, uh, treating people, uh, bearing false witness against people is evil. Yeah, taking what doesn't belong to you is evil. Yeah, having uh, pride and arrogance is evil. Yeah, treating people with uh, malevolence or, or maliciousness or, or, you know, uh, 
in a, in a evil way is, is wrong, you know. We say what God calls sin, we call sin. Amen? So if we homo legato or confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that. I always emphasize all. Not some, not most, but all unrighteousness. Amen. But at verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You never want to get to the point and you won't get to the point until, until Jesus comes where you're absolutely 100% holy and perfect without fault at all. But guess what? You should be becoming, be becoming more and more righteous before God. Amen? Amen? We call that sanctification. Amen? What's sanctification? What's justification? Justification, remember the, the publican who beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, sinner. He left Jesus said he was justified before God. Amen. He was right. It means to be made right with God. When you're justified, it means to be made right with God. And when you're made right with God because you're forgiven, then what takes place in your life when you first come to Christ? Then you're regenerated, amen? amen? And regeneration is being born again where you're, brought, you're given new life. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you, amen? Okay? And the next process, part of that process is sanctification. And sanctification is a process whereby God makes you more and more holy, where he makes you more and more like Jesus, amen? And so we recognize he's thrice holy, but as we come to him in prayer and we, and we apply God's truth to our lives and we seek his word and we read his word and we encourage one another and we respond to his discipline correctly, we become more and more like Christ. We become more and more sanctified. Now, it's critical, though, that we confess our sins before God so we can be forgiven and be holy. Now, there's, this is important to understand as well. There are, there's two types of holiness, okay? We're going to get a little theology tonight, but we're here to learn, right? That's what we do, okay? We don't just get a couple verses and a couple stories. Hey, good to see you guys. We learn, right? When we talk about holiness, there's two different aspects of holiness you need to understand. There's positional holiness, and then there's practical holiness. Positional holiness is, if you're a Christian right now, and you're trusting Jesus, right, for your salvation, you are part of the body of Christ, and you are forgiven of your sins, and you're declared holy by God. And that's because that's your position in Christ because of the great exchange. Remember, the Bible says that God, that Christ became sin for us on our behalf, that we could become what? The righteousness of God, amen? That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verses 17 through 21 there. 17, 20, and 21 talk about that. So, you know, that's where I'm this sinner, I deserve wrath. Remember Joshua, the high priest, not Joshua under Moses, but Joshua, the high priest. Satan was accusing him. He was dressed in filthy garments, right? But then he was rebuked, you know? Well, the Lord rebuked him through God. God used the archangel Michael, you know? And uh, I'm sorry, he was rebuked by the angel in the name of the Lord because Joshua was a brand just that was pulled out of the fire, should have just been incinerated. But God pulled him out of the fire and saved him. And he put garments of salvation on him back in Zechariah and clothed him in righteousness. You and I are clothed by the righteousness of Christ. Amen? Amen. It says, not that we should, Paul said, not that I'd be found in my own righteousness, right? Because our righteousness, the Bible says, like filthy rags. But the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Amen? So the faith that we have, and, and when we're trusting Jesus, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We're cleansed by his blood and we're declared holy. So you're holy in your position. 
even though you're far and I'm far from perfect. Amen? We're not practically perfectly holy yet, but in your position before God, you're declared righteous because of Christ's perfect holiness. In fact, throughout the New Testament, when you look at the New Testament letters, so often it's addressed to hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S, if you're writing down notes. That's the Greek word for holy. Okay, hagios. And uh, hagios is transla- or translated saints. Okay, godly ones it's translated. Usually it's translated saints and it speaks of holy ones. Well, we're called holy because of what he did. That's positional holiness because of our faith in Christ. Amen. But practical holiness is the way you live out your life in living for God, amen, and becoming more and more righteous in your behavior and words in your thoughts and in your deeds, amen? And that's where you're crying out to God, have mercy on me, help me to be more like Jesus. And you're fighting the good fight. You're laying hold on eternal life and the cross before you, the world behind you, marching forward in Jesus. And, and you know what? Taking lumps here and there, falling short at times, but saying, Lord, cleanse me. First Corinthians, or First John 1, verse 7. If we walk in light, he's, uh, as he's in light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanse us from all sin. And 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgives our sins. Cleanse for all righteousness. Then we become cleansed, right? So we can become enjoy his, our positional holiness in him, but also so we can become what? More like him, sanctified. And eventually we'll be glorified, amen? And glorification is when we become just like Jesus as much as we humanly can become like Jesus. We'll never be perfectly like Jesus because he's the God man. But as much as we be, can become perfect men and women in his image, that will happen at the resurrection when we're actually fully uh, glorified in him. Now notice this, therefore I want men in every place to pray, verse 8 again, lifting up holy hands, but then he says this, without wrath, you translate that anger, without wrath or anger, and dissension, that's infighting, a lack of peace. God doesn't, you know, when people are fighting, it gives you an awful feeling, huh? We see people fighting, arguing, and just, it's just an ugliness. It's not the peace of God. God wants us to lift up holy hands without what? So our hands need to be holy. I emphasize that a lot. But without wrath and without dissension. Amen? Without wrath and without dissension. In other words, you can't be fighting with people and angry at people and holding a grudge against all kinds of people and doing your own thing and, you know, full of wrath and dissension and then lift up holy hands and say, Lord, bless my life. Bless my family. But you're filled with venom and anger and quarreling and all those things toward other people. It ought not to be like that, brothers and sisters. In fact, uh, that prayer that Jesus told us to pray, when he said pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as what? As in the same way that we forgive others who've sinned against us. Wow. Wow. Now that is such an important prayer uh, because in verses 14 and 15, a little bit later, Jesus comments. In the Sermon on the Mount, he comments on that part of the prayer. And it's interesting because in in Matthew, he comments only on that part of the prayer because they're wondering, wow, I'm praying for forgiveness of sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Is Jesus, if I would just heard that, I was like, is Jesus implying that I won't be forgiven if I refuse to forgive? Oh, yeah, because then he addresses it, makes sure that we understand that's exactly what he's saying. Because in verses 14 and 15, he says this, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Wow. But if you do not 
forgive men their trespasses. Neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Is that serious stuff? That's serious. So serious that Jesus in Matthew chapter, what is it? Verse chapter 18, verses 21 through 35 uh, and I, have to, I didn't put this in my notes, but I have to share it because, and I've mentioned this from time to time, but it's so instructive. It's so uh, weighty what Jesus teaches there that really bolsters what he teaches here as well. Uh, he taught this over and over again, by the way. You know, Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 5, he repeats it, you know. Uh, you know, forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus, right? James talks about that. He says, uh, on judgment day, if you're fighting with your brothers and sisters and stuff, he says, on judgment day, for those who haven't shown mercy, there'll be no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. So if you show mercy, you'll receive mercy. Wow. And Jesus said in Mark 7, Mark 11, I think it is, that when you stand praying, make sure you forgive others who've sinned against you so your Father in heaven will forgive you. Wow, there it is again. And then in Matthew 18, so it's all over the New Testament, guys. Unforgiveness will cut off your prayer life and from God. If you refuse to forgive others, then you just have a mean-spirited heart and just hold a grudge. You don't pray for them or ask God to give you a merciful heart. And, and well, wait, I thought we're saved by grace through faith. Yeah, we are. We're saved by grace through faith. But guess what? The Bible says faith without works is dead. So if I'm truly in the faith and I'm walking in the grace of God, right, and I'm truly seeking him, I'm going to obey him. If I refuse to obey him, that shows you that I'm not walking in the faith at that moment. And if I continue to rebel against him, I'm not in the faith. So he's talking about the evidences of faith and what your Christian life should look like. And in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, that's where Peter, remember he said, how many times shall I forgive my brother? Jesus, you know, up to, up to you know, remember what he said? Up to how many times? Seven. Seven times. Because the Jews were teaching in those days that you should forgive somebody up to three times. And after three times, you don't have to forgive them. So Jesus said another time, if your brother sins against you seven times, forgive him every time. So Peter's like, so Jesus, my brother sins against me, I forgive him seven times. He wants to wonder if there's a cap. It sounds like he's asking, okay, three, okay, Jesus, you're doubling and adding one. So if seven times, that's the limit now? Who knows, maybe he's having a hard time with John and James because they'd argue about who's the greatest and stuff. We know that they were always arguing and stuff as they became, were trying to become more like Christ until they got more sanctified. And Jesus says, not seven times, Peter, but what? Remember that? Seven times 70. Seven times 70. Wow. How many times is that, guys? Yeah, 490. Good job. I know you're like seven times seven out of zero. Good job, though. <laughs> That's a lot of times, 490. Now, why do you think he would have said, Jesus, I uh, forgive my brother 490 times? Is that it? I think he's missed the message, right? You know, maybe he did say that because Peter said some crazy things and, and God spared him. I said, I'm not going to put the answer to that. And maybe he didn't. We don't, he probably didn't, but he probably got the message. But this is what's the heavy thing about that. After Jesus says this to him, he describes to him, he says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is how God's kingdom works. He talks about, remember the man who uh, owed his master uh, insurmountable debt he couldn't pay back. And, and he was begging the master to have mercy upon him and... and uh, he owed him 10,000 talents. And you remember when I taught, taught in that parable a long time ago, some of you were there, that the number 10,000 was the biggest numerical number they had to write down at that time. And a talent was the biggest weight of money 
in those days. So Jesus takes the biggest number they were using. And he takes the biggest uh, you know, value of currency and puts the two together. What's his point? This guy could never pay it back and he owes this debt. And he says the guy cried for mercy, you know, and he didn't want to be put in prison and his family, he and his family could be sold in this servitude, slavery, to pay it back. But what did his master do? He forgave him his debt. And that's showing incredible forgiveness. But then what happened? His fellow servant owed him a hundred denarii. A denarius was a day's wages for a laborer. Okay, it was like an average laborer's pay. And, and when I first read that parable, I used to think, why didn't Jesus say one denarius or two mites? Huh, I know he's always right. So I just wondered, why didn't he even make it even more drastic? But I realized one day when I was thinking about it, I go, you know what? If he would have said two mites or something very small, it would have been considered frivolous almost. But I think he said 100 denarii because he wanted to show that this guy owed him 100 days wages. There's 100 days of his work or whatever that this guy owed him. He wanted to show that it would be something maybe hard to forgive. I, want, I think he wants us to relate that this would be something, wow, because if somebody owed you, you know, add up your work of 100 days work and say somebody owes that to you and they're not paying you back, you'd be pretty miffed probably. Or if it was two mites, it would be like you couldn't even really relate to that. Okay, it's some pennies or whatever. So he owed him 100 denarii and, he didn't, and he's like, pay me back now. And you know what? This is a crazy thing is the guy that said, to his master that was forgiven the 10,000 talents, have mercy on me, you know, da, da, da. This guy said the same, the words are exactly the same. Said the exact same words to his fellow servant that had just been forgiven. Forgive me, da, da, you know, same thing. And instead of forgiving him, he started choking him around the neck. He was so angry, trying to choke him to death. And the fellow servants went to the master and said, the servant that you forgave, that great debt is refusing to forgive. And this other, his fellow servant. And the master of that servant said, go, and take that wicked servant and throw him into prison. No, no longer shall I forgive him. Wow. Forgive. Your, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. For if you forgive your brother, you'll be forgiven. But if you refuse to forgive your brother, you won't be forgiven. Jesus taught that. And then you know what? This is a crazy thing too. Jesus applied it then. So as he looked at Peter... He said, so shall my heavenly father. What, did, what happened to the master do? He refused to forgive him. And he said, you will not get out until you pay the last penny. Wow. Jesus said, so shall my heavenly father do to you. And in the Greek, it's plural. All you guys, all you disciples. So shall my heavenly father do to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. You'll be handed over to the tormentors and you won't get out, he said, until you pay the last penny or last cent. That's heavy. Because are we talking about a guy who was never really was truly forgiven? Or he was truly forgiven? forgiven. He was truly forgiven. He represents Christians. And then he's going to be put in prison. Peter, this is going to happen to you. The disciples are going to happen to you. If you refuse to repent, you'll never get out. And I'm not, you know me. You've been here long enough. I don't try to explain those things away. Oh, it really doesn't mean that. Oh, you just lose some fellowship with God. No, man. It says what it says. And it's serious. Amen. Because he's definitely warning believers. Was Peter a believer? And the other apostles, yeah. That's how the kingdom of heaven works, Jesus said. The guy was truly forgiven. Then he was in rebellion. 
And then he lost his forgiveness. So now he's not getting out until he pays the last penny. What's the idea there? Well, you can never earn your salvation, right? You could never. How could he get right? Just plead for mercy from his master. Okay, master. Master already forgave him 10,000 talents, right? It's a wonderful forgiving master. Come to his senses. Say, have mercy on me. I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that after you forgave me, you know? And have a heart to relinquish the other person that owes him. What about you? Are there some people that, somebody that you're constantly burning against because they borrowed something from you or you gave them something and you're angry and you're upset and so forth and, and you're refusing to, you know, love them and so forth? You have to make choices and say, you need to make sure you let things go. Now, I'm not talking about if there's, you know, we're talking about fellow servants of, we're talking about fellow believers, amen? You know, and Paul says it's better to be defrauded in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you know? Now, if you're in a business, you know, and you're, you're like, oh, then we're just going to rip this Christian off. We're just going to rip him off everything he has because he can't. No, there's also courts that are given uh, for the reasons. You can make things right but still have a good heart toward people. You know what I'm saying? So if you're in a business and you've got a business situation, you know, uh, or somebody, you know, a neighbor continues to just run over your fence every time you rebuild it because you he think he's mocking you as a Christian, that doesn't mean that you wouldn't get restitution because the Bible also talks about restitution. But he's talking about the condition of your heart. Because his brother, it says if your brother sins against you seven times and he repents, forgive him. Isn't that interesting? It says if he sins against you seven times and he repents, forgive him. What's going on there? Well, God wants us to have a forgiving heart. And if my brother sins against me, and let's say, you know, uh, some wicked thing is happening to you, you have a heart to forgive, but that doesn't restore your relationship unless there's repentance. Remember on the cross, what did Jesus say? Father, what? Forgive them for they don't know what they do. Was everybody just forgiven and saved at that moment? No, they had to, that was the attitude of Jesus to offer them forgiveness, but they had to what? To get saved and be forgiven. They had to repent of their sins. So somebody can sin against you and hurt you if they refuse to turn from that you should still have an attitude of forgiveness. Pray for them. Lord, help me to love that person. You know, help me not to hold that against them. Help me not to hurt them back. Help me not to return evil for evil. But if you can't, you can't walk with them hand in hand, though, if they're in rebellion to God. The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they be what? In agreement. Amen? So you can't walk with a brother if he continues in Rome. But you, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, be at peace with all men as much as it depends upon you. You need to make sure you do your part. Amen? Are you understanding? See, it's interesting because uh, Psalm chapter 26, verse 6 says, I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord. So altar represented the presence of God, he says, I will wash my hands in innocence and I will go around your altar, O Lord. And the altar was at the temple. There was a place to give gifts to the Lord. There was a place to pray. And he would wa they would wash their hands. There would be pools nearby where they would wash their hands to go and pray. And it was symbolic of being right before God at his altar. But you know what the Lord says when you go and you offer something? You offer a gift at the altar? Uh, it's interesting what it says in the scripture about offering your gifts at the altar. Sometimes we come to church, we say, okay, I'm ready to worship and praise, but we need to check our hearts. That's my point tonight. Amen. 
Man, is our hearts right? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, and if you could go there if you want, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, you're good for nothing, Jonathan. And if he says, uh, guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you uh, good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now, this isn't you having something against your brother now that sinned against you and forgiving him. This is your brother has some angst with you. And you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. It's more important that you make sure you're right with a brother or sister who you have something going on with and at least do what you can and do your part. It's more important to do that than to offer a gift at the altar. It's more important to make sure your heart's right. Then bring your offerings before the Lord. Then lift your hands. Remember, the psalmist said, my hands, when I lift them, they're like the, the evening sacrifice, the evening incense before you. It's like a sacrifice to God. So before you lift your hands, make sure you're right with people. Before you offer praise to the Lord and you've you got somebody who you've really hurt and maybe it's their fault, not your fault, they misunderstood you. We should still love our neighbors ourselves and make sure they understand that you love them and you didn't mean anything evil. You understand what I'm saying? Very, very important. Are you with me? So I love this. You know why I love this? That shows me whatever relationships I have, whether somebody's hurt me, somebody's said something to me, somebody's done something against me, or whether they feel like I've hurt them, the Lord has us taking care of it both ways. How? Because my brother sinned against me. Matthew chapter 18, go to him. Verse 15 through 18. And, and confront him. If you refuse to repent, bring one or two with you. If you still refuse to repent, and like he stays in rebellion to God, bring it before the church. Let the church deal with it then. Or if you've been hurt or you've hurt him, go to him. Let him know, hey, you know, get it done quickly. Deal with it. Deal with it quickly. Why quickly? Well, verse 26 says, truly I say to you, uh, <laughs> you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. Wow, there that is again. Because verse 25 says this, uh, well, I'm going to read to you Romans 8, 12, 18. If it is possible, if it is possible, may not be possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So you do your part to just show love to people. Now, sometimes you're going to meet cantankerous people, people that refuse to be conciliatory. But you've just done your part. Then you can have peace. Say, okay, I know I put out the olive branch. I showed love. Amen. Then you can have peace. You understand what you're with me tonight? God wants us to have us to grow as Christians, and hopefully you're being encouraged. Hopefully you're being stretched. Hopefully you're being strengthened. Maybe it's just a big reminder, but it's all important that we get this down. And he says, make friends quickly, verse 25, with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into the prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out there until you have paid the last cent. So in this case, other cases, someone sinned against you. In this case, maybe you sinned against them. 
You need to, either way, you need to make sure your heart's right, whether it's repentance and say, I'm sorry, brother, sister, or there's a misunderstanding, or I forgive you. Either way, God wants us to have peace. That's what the cross is about, man. It's a vertical beam and it's a horizontal beam. And I love it, man, because it's through the cross of Christ that we're forgiven with God and we're made right with him. And it's through the cross of Christ and forgiving us, he's forgiven us, that we forgive others and we're right with others. Goes two ways, man. I love it. It's powerful. The simplest symbol on earth is the most profound symbol on earth. And when you look, look at the cross, think of it that way. It shows me, Jesus showed me how to relate to the Father and have forgiveness and how to relate to others through mercy and forgiveness. So we have to ask ourselves, is there any conflict or quarreling or dissension or wrath or anger uh, that we have with a brother that we need, to make right, we need to make it right with? We have to apply this to our lives and, and don't just rush to worship and, and not check your heart and say, is my heart right? Amen? And then we can go into the presence of God. And you want to apply this to if you're married or not. If you're not married, you want to apply this to your, right now, right in your heart, so you know for the future. If you are married, apply it right now to your life. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Wow. Women are made exquisitely, totally different than men. They're made, they can bear babies. They do these miraculous, what seems miraculous to us anyway, that men can't do. And I always compare, when it says weaker, it's not saying inferior. They're not inferior or less than. I always say it's like the root beer mug and the champagne glass, right? The, the champagne glass is weaker. It's more brittle, but it, that's what makes it so beautiful. And if I have a glass and I'm running down the hall, it's the root beer mug and I hit against the wall, it's probably not going to be a big deal. Champagne glass, I don't drink champagne but my wife would be like, what were you running with that, you know? So there, it's jeans versus silk, you know? Guys are like jeans. Women are more like silk. God's made them in, in that, that beautiful, feminine, exquisite way. But guess what? Men, if you're not dwelling with your wife in an understanding way, as a co-heir, it says, of the grace of life, they've, Christ shed his blood for them as much as you. That's revolutionary in the, in the first century, man, because the Romans treated women like they were slaves, many of them. No kidding. Some of them had three wives, one for entertainment, one for sex, and one for intellectual stimulation. And they were, you know, consider them their property and so forth. Well, guess what, guys? God, the Bible says in Christ there's neither male nor female, amen? We're all equal before the cross. We have different roles, different positions, but we need to make sure we're forgiving one another, we're loving one another, amen? amen. That's critical that we get that. And he says, so your prayers are not hindered. Then he goes on to say, and I won't take time to go, go look at it with you, but uh, I use this all the time in my premarital classes, you know, before people get married. He goes on to say that to refrain from speaking evil, you know, and those who do evil, he says, you know, God will shut his ears to them right after he says this. I tell husbands, man, don't get bitter with your wives. Wives, don't get bitter with your husbands. Husbands, you get bitter with your wives, your prayers will be hindered. F the FAA, you know what they do? They check out planes, they scour them for any problems, and they do not let them fly off the ground until they see that they are right. Well, your prayers will not fly with God unless your heart is right. So you need to inspect your heart and say, Lord, show me if there's any evil way in me, anything that grieves your heart, anything that's wrong, that I may repent of it and get right, amen? Let's walk with holy hands lifted in prayer. Let's pray with holy hands, right? Without wrath, without dissension, right? With pure hearts and clean hands, let's go into his presence, thanking him and praising him for who he is. Can we all please stand?